Well, Kevin, since you just preached the sermon, I don't need to. So, wow, I shed some tears there, and some of those were counted and held by the Lord. What a, just glorious sometimes to focus directly on Christ. Um, just great stuff. I am so thankful that he is writing our stories. He's writing my story that he is in control, I can rest in that, in the midst of my heart, panicking. I was, uh, I was even wallowing a little bit on that same theme uh, this weekend, yesterday, Friday and uh, Saturday. Obviously, most of you know I have an 18-year-old daughter who runs Division One track, and um, I just, uh, you know, you, you get anxious for your kids, and you pray for your kids, and you say, Lord... Provide them a place to go. They're not entitled to anything where they're safe. They're loved by their coaches. They're cared for. And uh, yesterday was a little bit of a milestone. She had her first uh, indoor track meet of the season away. And guess where they guess where they had that track meet yesterday? Just guess. Clemson. <laughs> and I said, ain't that something? So I was sort of, sort of funny, and she ran a PR in the 60s, so I was sitting there saying, Lord, you, you, you love my girl more than I love her. Good gosh. So this is a good time. It's bigger than that, but that's just a little snippet. So there's some more tears. Uh, well, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter uh, 22 this morning. Luke chapter 22. This morning, as you can see from the slide behind me, we are starting our next little mini-series. We've been doing these all through the last 11 years in the book of Luke, right? And this morning, we're starting a mini-series that will compromise of chapters 22 and 23. We'll start with, this morning, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas and will end with his burial and everything in between what I think is one of the most or the most profound, stunning, gracious, and yet brutal stories in the history of mankind. We'll start timeline-wise on Wednesday and we'll end Wednesday of the Passover week and we'll end on Friday. And the casual reader of these two chapters may come away with this sense that God is not present, that he's absent, or where is God? But I assure you, we will see very clearly that he is alive and that he is moving everything toward his planned destiny from all of eternity to exactly how he wanted it to be. We'll see that the death of Jesus was no accident. That it's not a bad ending to just a good life. We'll see that God is controlling every detail of Jesus' march to the cross. Matter of fact, Jesus himself indeed said he is in charge of his own death. You aren't. I'm not. But he was. Listen to his words, John 10.8. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down, speaking of his life, of my own accord, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
The New Testament clearly teaches that everything happened to Jesus was controlled by his father and that Jesus actually only did everything that his father told him to do and say. It was perfect obedience. If not, he's not a savior. We have no savior. It also teaches that Jesus came into this world. Galatians 4 puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, which really means Jesus came into this world on a divine schedule, and Jesus will go out of this world on a divine schedule. Remember growing up, some of you guys, how many of you guys ever got in a fight in elementary, middle school, high school, last week? <laughs> One of the things I used to say is, your mama brought you into this world, but I'm going to take you out, Jack. That's pretty powerful right there, right for a fight. I say that because I want you to remember this. God the Father brought Jesus into this world, and it is only God the Father that will take him out of this world. That's why Revelation 13, 8 says, or calls him the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was God's plan that Jesus would die before anything was ever created. Now, you may remember if you've gone, as we've gone through the book of Luke and as you've read other gospel accounts, there were many times, even from his birth, that the religious leaders wanted him dead. And over and over, they could not do it because it was not time. We're going to see in these next two chapters, it is the time. Over and over, the reader, as we read the Gospels, it says his hour has not yet come. Luke 22 and 23 says his hour has come. We have called this mini-series The Ransom. Because of what the death of Christ accomplishes for us when we trust in that death. On your notes, I gave you a working definition of the ransom. It says, Jesus' ransom, Jesus ransoms us from the wrath of God by his substitutionary atonement that placates or satisfies the creator's wrath. This means that we never need fear his condemnation if we trust in Christ alone for salvation. <clears throat> the writer of Mark, or Mark himself, writes in 1045, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This term ransom in the first century really meant the same thing as it means for us today. It is money paid to rescue someone from captivity or to purchase their freedom for a, for a slave or the release of a hostage. It's obvious that in that scenario, the slaveholder or the person who's kidnapped someone, they're the ones that actually set the price of the ransom. Are they not? We understand that. Some say here that Satan is the one that the ransom is going to be paid to through Jesus' death because of what the scriptures teach about people being enslaved to spiritual darkness. I want to tell you this morning that they're wrong. There is no doubt that God in his perfect holiness is the one that demands 
a ransom to release us from the condemnation that each of us is born under. Romans 5.12 puts it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You and I were born condemned. You and I are sinners. Matter of fact, I'd put it this way. You, maybe your greatest threat to spiritual growth or coming to faith in Christ is the belief that you are good. <laughs> That's what gets in everyone's way. That's why we live in a culture of outrage. Look at them and what they did. Because they believe they are good. The scripture teaches the total opposite. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that our ransom was not paid with money. It wasn't paid with silver or gold or perishable items, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or spot, he says. Yes, the tone and ransom payment for clarity does release us from the bondage of sin and Satan. But we are first and foremost saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now no, have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of what? God. The release we get from the bondage of sin and Satan is impossible without being first saved from God's holy wrath. Christ's ransom payment through his shed blood to all those that trust in that shed blood alone for forgiveness, let me say it again, satisfies the wrath of God toward us since birth. The theological word we use to describe this is propitiation. It means God is no longer angry with us. If you've trusted in him, God is no longer, he no longer punishes us. He punishes his son in our place. Matter of fact, I, I want to shepherd you this morning. I want to say to you that if in, in your mind and heart, and I'm guessing it's there because there were years it was in my mind and heart that God was going to get me and that God was going to, when I sinned, he was going to come after me and he was going to punish me. If that's what you're believing, that is a major detriment to your spiritual growth. Now, of course, he disciplines his children in whom he loves. But that's a whole different disposition toward a child, toward his child, than punish. God's righteous anger toward us has been forever, think about this, satisfied by the perfect son through his death and spilled blood. Propitiation means we're no longer enemies of the living God, and now he is actually for us. He has favor toward us. His whole disposition, as I said, has changed toward us. Before Christ, his back was turned to us. Before Christ, his ears were sealed to us. Before Christ, he was blind to us. Now, he saw us. But you understand what I'm saying here? His arms and fists were clenched. 
And all that's changed. He has open arms. When we sin, this is why we can run to him because he responds to us like the father in Luke 15 responds to the return of the prodigal son. When he chases us and comes after us, it's not to somehow beat us down, it's to woo us back to himself. Because when we get himself, our lives change. As Spurgeon puts it, the ransom payment by the blood of Jesus is not an arm of Christian truth. It is the actual heart of it. It is the gospel. John Piper puts it bluntly when he describes the ransom payment, when he says, God paid God. God paid God. A sacrificial offering, he says, made on the mercy seat to avert God's wrath and restore us to God. The ransom was paid by God in Christ to God the Father in sending, in, in sending his son to die for an otherworldly massive debt that we owed to the Father. Now, I want to warn you this morning. As we teach through these two chapters, they're very familiar chapters. And there's always a danger in that. There's a danger in the weeks to come that these chapters, the stories that we unpack, will be so recognizable by you that your response will be, oh, heard that before. I, 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 I just want to tell you, if you do that, you will miss out on some of the most profound gospel life-changing messages, not because we're giving them, but because of what we're going to learn about the ransom. I encourage you, I exhort you to wake up, to be alive and focused in, to read these chapters in your time. And I'll put it this way. Now, you know I'm a football guy or ex-football guy, right? I'm looking more and more like an ex the older I get. But I still think I got one play. I, I'm texting Dabo. I'm like, Dabo, give me one, right? Clemson gets put on probation because they let a 57-year-old man play. I'd love that. Be famous the rest of my life. <laughs> but here, here's the thing about football. It, it is not, not all sports are this way. Some are, some aren't. But in football, you practice way more than you play. Look, you play 12 games, 13 games a year as a college, 16 in the pros. Is that right? But you practice six days. And here's the deal. Coaches say, don't cheat the game. And what they mean by that is if you don't put the practice in, you're going you're gonna to pay for it. It's going to bite you terrible. I don't care how much talent you got on Sunday. Now, I say that because that's the Christian life. This is the Sunday game for us where we gather together. But I'm telling you, if you cheat your Christian life and this is all you got, there's no practice of the spiritual disciplines, there's no devotional life, there's no engaging God outside of this Sunday morning, you're cheating yourself and you're not awake. You're asleep. And you wonder why I feel so far from God. And you wonder why God is not intimate with you. Because of you, the ransom should draw us back to not be asleep, to practice so we can play the game well.
It's my last football illustration of 2021. <laughs> so let's turn to the ransom, traitorous and trustworthy. Just so you know, I practiced that word 30 times, traitorous. <laughs> Read with me, Luke 22, 1 through 13. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan in, entered into Judas, called Iscariot. There were a lot of Judases in those days, very normal, common name. So the, Luke distinguishes here who this is, one of the disciples, Judas called Iscariot, who was the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepared? He said to them, behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So it's pretty obvious just from reading the text that verses 1 through 6 is traitorous. It's about the traitor, Judah. Judah and Judas. <laughs> Sorry. That's a southern... Synonym for Judas, old Judah. <laughs> You're welcome for that. And, uh, and verses 7 through 13 is that about John and Peter's trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. So, verses 1 through 6, I'll call it this. I'll call it Let's Make a Deal. How many of you are familiar with the historic TV show started in 1963 called Let's Make a Deal? Remember that one? This is not that. This is a deal with the devil. In these verses, we'll see Judas make a deal with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Jesus. But before we do, the writer of Luke wants us to see a bigger context. He wants us to see what is actually going on around this event of betrayal. First, Luke tells us what's going on in Jerusalem. On, at this time, on Wednesday, before Jesus is crucified on Friday. It is the time, he says, of the unleavened, Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover. And you got to remember here, there are two million Jews who have descended on Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate this yearly feast, this yearly celebration called the Passover and Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's typically a week-long celebration, and at some point they put it all together into an eight-day week or eight days together. It was to be a time of reflection. It was to be a time to recount, if you would, the promises of God 
for a future Messiah by looking backwards and remembering God's deliverance and provision for freedom from slavery in Egypt, in which, you may remember, all the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed and died, and all the firstborn of the Israelites lived because they took the blood of a sacrificed lamb and wiped over their doorposts. That event was the last straw that made Pharaoh say, I give. And he released the Israelites, and on the next day they started their journey to the promised land. Are we all together? So each year the whole nation here would gather to reflect on its deliverance as families. They held a meal to remember that event. They sang hymns of worship. They offered thanks, and they sacrificed lambs to God. The meal consisted of part of the lamb that had been sacrificed and unleavened bread. Unleavened bread simply means bread that has no yeast because as they took off for the promised land, they had to leave in a hurry. They didn't have time for the bread to rise, so that became a staple in their journey to the promised land. Verse 2 tells us, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, I want to pause here, and I want you to look at that verse. Look at verse 2, and I want you to see if you can see the irony, because the irony is jumping off the page. In the very midst of this holiday celebration that celebrates freedom and life, the religious leaders of the Jewish people and of the temple worship are scheming to end the life of the very one who's come to give them eternal life. They ain't no doubt, and we've seen it in Luke, that Jesus is a full-on threat to the religious leaders in Israel, full-on. But there ain't no doubt that the people are also through a threat. Look what they said, notice, for they feared the people. Now, why would they fear the people? Like when I read the text, I want to ask a question. Why would they fear the people? Well, just three days earlier, if you read your Bible, hundreds of thousands of Jews had lined the streets all the way from the Mount of Olives down to the city of Jerusalem fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy hundreds of years before that said this, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting on a donkey. Jesus did that, and as he did that, the text tells us they sang and shouted with great emotion. Hundreds of thousands of people screaming, Hosanna, blesses the one who comes in the name of the Lord, John 12 tells us. Hosanna in Hebrew is, means to save or to help. They're screaming, the one who saves, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they follow that with blessed is the king of Israel. There is no doubt. As we look at this journey of Christ from Luke 52 forward, as it says, he turns his eyes toward the cross, and he never took his eyes off the cross. 
on that journey, this crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem had expectations to place their nationalistic hopes in Jesus. So the religious leaders, they wanted to kill Jesus. But they did not want to kill him to after the Passover was finished. And after the two million people had actually gone back home because they were afraid a riot would take place. Matthew tells us our parallel passage of this text in Matthew 26, 5 says, they literally, they were afraid of a riot if they took him now. But we must remember that God had planned his death for a specific hour. Not an hour sooner, not an hour later, not a few days earlier, not eight days later after Passover was over, but for a specific hour, and so it would be. So we ask the question, how are they going to arrest Jesus without the people seeing it? And if they do, they're probably going to set off a riot at this point. Here's what happened, though. The religious leaders overestimated the faithfulness of the fans of Jesus. They were mighty fickle. And just a day or two later, they were saying, crucify him. Well, they said, let Barabbas go. Religious leaders really overestimated their faithfulness. They're thinking, look, we can't arrest him in the middle of the day. Everybody will see us. Things will blow up around here. They said we can't, can't find him at night when he and the disciples go off into the thick Mount of Olives, basically to camp with millions of other people crowded around Jerusalem. No way to find him at night. They didn't have cell phones to find where they're beeping. You get the picture. They needed an insider. Someone who would know exactly where he was and could tell them. And verse 3 tells us they found their man. Look at verse 3. Sorry. Read the wrong chapter. Apologize. Verse 3, then Satan entered into him, into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. They found their guy. Matthew 26 tells us the chief priests and Jewish religious leaders were at the place of the high priest, Caiaphas. And in comes old Judas, ready to make a deal with the devil of hell. Judas says, what will you give me to turn Jesus over to you? And the leaders say, I don't know. What about 30 pieces of silver? <laughs> Judas says, deal. And they shake hands. Look, there was no negotiation. <laughs> there was no bothering back and forth. It was easy. 30 pieces of silver. Four months' wages to sell out the God-man. Judas says, you got yourself a deal. Now, I ask the question, why would Jesus, Judas do that? Here's what the scriptures tell us about Judas. He was definitely an unbeliever. John 12 says he's a thief. He's certainly greedy. And now the scripture says he's filled with the devil. 
most scholars, there's a hundred opinions on exactly what that means. And so I'm not going to give you one of them. But here's what we do know for sure. That 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us as clear as anything that the devil of hell is like a roaring lion always seeking someone to devour. And he has found his man. And his name is Judas. Old Judas had these grand visions of coming into power with the Messiah. Remember, we've talked about that in the last few weeks. He was going to be officing up in the temple. He was going to be one of the big dogs that ran the whole nation of Israel and therefore the world based on what he had read in the Old Testament. But over the last few weeks and the last few days, he realized this thing ain't going with how I thought it was going to go. This story that I've been involved with, man, they're talking about suffering. They're talking about death. They're talking about execution. They're talking about things that I want no part of. So you know what he decides? He decides, I'm out. He didn't sign up for suffering and eternal things. He signed up for comfort and the here and now. And so it was game on. Three years. Just let your heart wallow with this. Three years of hearing everything Jesus said, every miracle, seeing folks get raised from the dead, and it's a no for him. The most chilling statement, maybe in verse 3, is he belonged to the 12. A crime of incredible lost opportunity and privilege. Let me remind us, let me just pause here for personal application. I want to remind us that being around the things of Jesus in a good church, in a great Christian home, does not in itself guarantee any kind of spiritual connection to the real Jesus. Obviously, God's church is full of non-Christians who think they're Christians. I grew up in a home like that. I grew up in a home where my dad taught Sunday school for 20 years. I do not, there was no evidence that he knew Christ. That's a question for some of you. Do I really know Christ or I've just been around it? But there's also some implication and application for believers here. Man, not in the sense that we don't know Christ, but we're not intimately connected to him. All that I just said about the football practice thing. Church history is full of those who at one time linked themselves to Jesus only to hit eject when life is not going as they should. And then their real color showed. Verse 6 tells us, with the deal done and a bag of coins on his hip, Judas just needed an opportunity. And the opportunity is going to come. Look at verse 7 through 13. Now we go into sort of the preparations for the Passover. So now we're on Thursday planning for the Passover meal. And on Friday, Jesus will be crucified. There's our timeline. So here's what's happening here. The plan of God is moving forward. On Friday the next day, between 3 and 6, the Passover lambs in Jerusalem will be slaughtered by the priest in the temple. Tens of thousands of them, one per family, 
Writers have said that the, the priests are more like butchers this time of year than they are priests. The blood is flowing into the streets of Jerusalem. Lambs are screaming as their throats are slit. And that's a nice look at it. A sacrificial system that is coming to an abrupt halt. But for now, the blood flows in the streets of Jerusalem. But there is something new that's starting. The Lord's Supper is what's starting, where we as Christ followers remember the perfect Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world. That's where our text has taken us. For those who trusted him, from Isaac, remember Isaac, asking his father Abraham, where is the lamb sacrifice? And all through the Old Testament, the sacrifice of lambs were central. Today, all that turns on his head. You get it? All that flips, if you would. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul actually says he calls Christ our Passover. And indeed he is. The wrath of God passes over all who are spiritually covered by the blood of Christ. But in verses 7 through 13, this is all about the setup in some ways. How the Lord set up a Passover meal at a place that no one knew about. So you saw clearly Jesus told who? John and Peter, go and prepare a place. Prepare the Passover so they can eat it. Now, preparations would include, they would include the need of a lamb, unleavened bread, four kinds of wine, bitter herbs, and a dip called kesareth to dip the bread in. The four wines correlate with uh, Exodus 6, 6 and 7, the four promises that God made to Israel as they uh, journey to the promised land. The bitter herbs were a reminder of the bitter times in the land of Egypt. So there's a lot of preparation for two gals, less alone two guys. Amen? They got a lot to do. Verse 9 says, where do you want us to prepare it? Great question. Think about it. They've been essentially camping up in the Mount of Olives. They don't have all that stuff. They got to find it. Jesus answers that in verse 10 and 11. Now, verse 10 and 11 is either just hilarious or it's like the beginning of a spy novel. Go to Jerusalem and find a man carrying a jug of water. Okay, two means of people, and I got to find a man carrying a jug of water. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. I'm like, whoa. Now, some things I read this week, I'm not sure I believe, but some experts say that only women carried water in Israel, in Jerusalem. Sorry, gals. <laughs> the men weren't too nice back in the day. Here, woman, you carry my water, right? So if that's true, the man carrying water would sort of stick out like a sore thumb. However, whatever is happening, the plan certainly implies this secrecy. So Judas would not know where they would be in order to tell the Jewish leaders. Because if Judas had known and had told them, we're going to meet at John and Sarah Smith's house, 409 Jerusalem Way. As they sat down in that room, they would have came to arrest Jesus in private. And in doing so, you go to this week, here's some 
practice for you spiritually. Go read John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Some of the richest five chapters back to back in all of scriptures. If Judas had known and Jesus would have been betrayed before this Passover meal, we would have been without the Last Supper, without the incredible teaching of the work on the Spirit and the world. There would be no washing of the disciples' feet, no telling Peter his, about his future denial, and no high priestly prayer. Jesus is executing the plan of God perfectly. God's sovereign, all-powerful, sovereign display, or is displayed right before us. So here's what they do. They follow this man into the house that he enters and tells the owner of the house, the teacher, <laughs> didn't have to say his name, not a teacher, the teacher says to you. And the Greek word there it is, yo. Yo, we need a guest room. And some of you are getting that. <laughs> to prep and eat our Passover meal. John 13, 27 tells us, it is in that very room that Jesus told Judas in that Passover room that they're finding from that homeowner, it is in that Passover room that G Jesus tells Judas, hurry and do what you're going to do. And Judas leaves the room. Do your thing, big fellow. Do your thing. And I'm, I, I'm letting you know that I know what you're going to do. I'm letting you know that it was prophesied in the Old Testament is coming true through me. I know what you, that you already talked to the religious leaders. I know you're going to betray me and sell me out. So go do your thing. Because as I tell you to go do your thing, I'm telling you that I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one that's in charge of my death. You're not killing me. I'm giving my life up. So you go do your thing. Because this is going down like my father said it would go down. I love that. Let me just step back a minute because in all the things that can happen in life that can just bring anxiety and fear and trembling, you and I need to know that nothing goes down in our life. Nothing that somehow slips, through, you know, God's mind. The guy that discipled me used to do this illustration. He said, Look, everything that happens in us is filters through the hand of the God that is writing our story. Whew. Take a deep breath. The last legitimate Passover now is transforming into the Lord's Supper. And we'll see that in full detail next week as Monty unpacks that event. The new era of salvation is being inaugurated with the death of God's perfect lamb. Folks, the ransom is about to be paid in full forever. I'm going to leave it there this morning, but I want to give you two very specific so what's. You may have other so what's, but I want to give you two things to chew on as you really think about, and we got some time this morning, if you really think about how might I apply this to my life. The first one is Satan 
obviously has power. People have said for years, where sinful passions run amok. Judas' sinful passion, sinful passion we saw, they run amok through his love of money and comfort. For a time, though, what did he do? He covered it. He faked his spirituality. He smiled on the outside. He went and hung with the disciples and Jesus. He, it looked as if he had on the outside a relationship with Christ. But what he did was he hid his real self. Man, one of the worst home environments you can grow up in is to make a child hide their real self. Hide their struggles, what's going on inside of them, because that produces an adult that hides their real self. And a lot of us grew up in that kind of home. And when we do, it always comes back to bite us. So I ask the question, do you have sinful passions? The answer for all of us is what? Yes, thank you. But the real question is, are you hiding them? The hiding is what gives the roaring lion a crack, if you would, to take you further than you ever thought you would go. Here's the beautiful thing. Because of God's ransom payment in Christ, you don't have to hide anymore. Christ took the full wrath of God upon himself. So I want you to wallow in that a minute. Secondly, this morning we've seen God paying God with a currency of blood for your sins and my sins to be wiped out forever. The slate to be clean. I just think sometimes part of our struggle spiritually is to lo lose the awe that comes with that. That when I place my trust in Christ, I stand up, as R.C. Sproul says, off my knees, and every sin is forgiven. Take time this morning to think about God's great kindness to you because of this ransom payment. Take a minute as the music plays softly.
stand with me this morning if you would. And pray with me in your own hearts. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning. We individually and corporately as a church, as a congregation, we thank you for your ransom payment for us. We thank you that you shed your blood for us. We thank you that you took on the wrath of God instead of us taking it on. And for that, Lord, I pray that the implications and applications of that in our lives would change how we see you. For us to walk with you, we've got to be able to trust you. For us to walk with you intimately, we've got to see who you really are, not who we have created in our own mind and heart. Help us to see you as a father. Help us to see you a loving father. Help us to see you as someone that we were your enemies, but now we're your friends. See someone to run to and tell the truth. Someone who weeps with us when we weep. Someone who comforts us in our sorrows. Someone who whispers their great love for us in our pain, even in our sin. The Bible teaches very clearly it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. How we see you as kind will really dictate how much and that we will repent. Help us, help us to do just that. We love you and everyone said, Amen.